Welcome to episode 105 of the Geek Rex podcast. This week, I am joined by most of our crew. So I'm joined by Hannah. Hello. Shane. Hey. And Cal. Hey. And I'm Harper. So this week, we decided, with it being the week leading up to Halloween, that we had so much fun putting together our big list that will be posted by the time you're listening to this of horror movies that we thought that would be really interesting to kind of discuss and just talk about our thoughts about what made it and what didn't make it on the list. So this list, just to give a little context, we did a top 30 horror movies of the last 15 years, basically since 2000. We, we initially started with of the 21st century, but we realized there was a lot of really good stuff in the year 2000 that that unfortunately cut out. So we decided to rearrange it a little bit in that way. And what we did, the same way we do most of our kind of voting lists for this sort of thing, we basically did a ranking voting. So we each picked 15 horror movies and ranked them from 1 to 15 and then gave them points in that order. And we also brought in a bunch of other folks, which this would be a good place to mention a huge thanks to everybody that contributed. We had about 20 people vote altogether, which made our list really interesting, I think, much more interesting than it would have been if it was just the five of us. We, we got a lot more variety and some interesting stuff made the list that I w was very surprised with. So thank you for everyone that contributed. So we, we got people from a couple different places, some horror experts and some major you know, movie cinephiles. So definitely some uh, good sources of, of picks for the list. So what we're going to do is just sort of run down the top 10 part of our list so you can view the other 20 from 11 to 30 on geekrex.com whenever you'd like. But we're going to talk about the top 10. So to start with, our number 10 movie is Pan's Labyrinth, directed by Guillermo del Toro from 2006. So what are your guys' thoughts about this? Did, did everyone here choose this movie? I didn't because I normally just can put it, lump it in with fantasy, so I didn't even think to put it. <laughs> I didn't put it, but that's only because uh, I was trying to limit myself to one film per director on the list, uh -huh. and I went with a different Del Toro film. But I do love Pan's Labyrinth quite a bit. Yeah, I definitely included this one on my list. I really, really like this movie. I think it's a really... A lot of people compare it to, like, Alice in Wonderland. And I think if you wanted to see Tim's, Tim Burton's version of that, you should watch this instead. Like, it's so <laughs> beautiful and twisted. And Doug Jones as, like, the pale man with the eyes in his hands, that image still haunts me. Yeah, this is a really good monster movie. And I think it might be the highest, like, unless you count something like uh, zombies as a monster, uh, this is one of the highest ranking just pure monster movies on here. I mean, it's it's a fairy tale, and I can totally see why a lot of horror purists like Shane didn't vote for it. But uh, god damn, it's pretty, and it's just the design, just everything about it. It just works. Yeah, it's it's definitely a great movie. It's just I, I don't know, just for some reason, I've always lumped it in my mind in in fantasy more than horror. But it definitely has some of those those horror elements, and a lot of that's due to some really stellar creature design, some of the best we've seen in the past ten years. So, yeah, I would I would agree with that. I, I actually didn't have it on my list as well for kind of the same reasons, Shane, and mostly for the fact that I just didn't think about it. And when I was looking for horror movies, I, I remember I started making my list looking at like you know, the top horror movies on IMDb and just browsing through and seeing which ones, you know, caught my fancy. And I guess Pan's Labyrinth just wasn't in that category and I didn't even, so I didn't, I didn't consider it. But after I saw a bunch of people voted for it, I was kicking myself. Because yeah, it is, as you guys said, it's, it's gorgeous. And I, I think it's one of the more literary horror movies to make our list for sure. Um, it's just very, it's very smart to go in that kind of historical direction and involve that fantasy and that kind of loss of innocence 
theme is is just works perfectly for this movie. I think this is Guillermo del Toro at his finest for sure. We'll have to see if he makes something that tops that at some point, or or maybe if one of the many, 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 many uh, <laughs> projects that never happened could have topped it. But yeah, this is what you should watch if you go see Crimson Peak and you feel really disappointed. <laughs> just come yeah. back and watch this instead. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a good one. So I guess we shouldn't linger on it too much because we can kind of continue this conversation on pretty easily because our number nine movie is another movie by Del Toro, actually. Uh, just worked out that way. It is The Devil's Backbone from 2001. Well, I mean, if you're asking, you know, can Guillermo Del Toro top Pan's Labyrinth? I think the papers <laughs> have spoken. Uh, he can and has. But I voted for The Devil's Backbone. That was the Del Toro film of mine that made it, in part because I think it's it's a pure horror film, but also because I love the fairy tale feeling of Pan's Labyrinth, but uh, The Devil's Backbone feels much more like a classical horror movie, and while some people are classical kind of ghost movie, but filtered through this really specific sensibility. You know, I mean, like Pan's Labyrinth, it's set during the Spanish Civil War, it feeds, it's starring a child, but the tone is much grimmer and the imagery is much starker to me. Like instead of dressing everything up in fairy tales, it is just a purely a, a ghost movie and it, it, it's uh, beautiful at it. Yeah, I think I need to rewatch this one because I remember watching it. I remember enjoying it. But I think I devoured it around the same time as some of his other movies. And so I don't have a really clear picture. And like sometimes parts of this movie and parts of the orphanage kind of morph together in my head. <laughs> and I have trouble differentiating. But I do remember enjoying it, but I don't think I voted for it. I know I didn't vote for it because I have never seen this movie. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very much along the same lines as, uh, as you, Hannah. It's been a really long time since I've seen it, and I'd almost kind of forgotten about it. Definitely one to revisit. I mean, I think if nothing else, it makes it abundantly clear. Both of these movies make it abundantly clear that Del Toro has a, a sweet spot with, you know, movies that heavily involve Spanish history and involve children as the lead characters. I think that's definitely where his kind of talents lie. I mean, even going back to something as early as Kronos is, is pretty similar in that aspect as well. You know, depending on how, what you think of, you know, Crimson Peak and Pacific Rim and, and Hellboy and all that stuff, I really feel like this was where he really excelled. And, and yeah, I mean, just the ability to blend fantasy and horror in a way that, you know, is both, it, it kind of hits that that really interesting crossroads between like this kind of childlike wonder and, and horror that I think is really difficult to do right. And is really, really interesting. It's one of my favorite kind of things when they, when they do it right. I, I often say the same thing about lock and key, the comic book that I totally was obsessed with. I just think that's a really interesting approach to take to horror just cause there, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff to mine there. And Del Toro is definitely a master at, at doing that. One of the things I noticed on our list, looking at the full 30 films total, is we have a lot of Spanish language films mm -hmm. or Spanish directors, which I would have thought just based on stereotypes, we would have more Japanese movies, you know, if anything else. But yeah, we really were kind of strong on the Spain movies this time. I think the J-horror boom just didn't age as well. The the Spanish movies and the Mexican movies were a little more classical. You know, I mean, they're they're both Western cultures, and they're they they were a little more familiar. 
I think a lot of Western filmmakers adapting Japanese movies or Japanese movies that came over here had a hard time finding finding long-term purchase. Like with the exception of really one or two movies, I, I can't think of any that have really lasted in the public consciousness. Yeah, I can't remember. Harper, did we have any on our list? Any uh, Japanese horror? We have a, a Japanese horror remake. Yeah, um, but that's an <laughs> English language film, right? So. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think we do, actually. I didn't make that connection. I noticed there was not a lot of J-horror. I did not notice that most of the foreign language movies were Spanish. That's kind of interesting. And even the ones that aren't, like, you've you've got Guillermo del Toro's movies, you got The Orphanage, and, like, even The Others was a Spanish director, mm-hmm. even though it's an English-language film. So, yeah, we had a really heavy influence there. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I think the only... I mean, we have some other, other countries present here. The only thing close to a j-horror i guess i I forgot about um the host which is korean but yeah i think that's it it's kind of interesting yeah actually that's a perfect note to kind of move on to our next movie which is not a japanese horror movie but it is a remake of a japanese horror movie and to my knowledge is one of the earliest examples of that boom that happened uh, back in the early 2000s that took over horror cinema for quite a while and that our number eight pick is the ring directed by gore verbinski from 2002 And this was one that I have to say, I was actually very surprised that it made it on the list. And then I was really surprised that it made it this high. But because I haven't seen it in so long, it's just a movie I hadn't really thought of that in a long time. But thinking back, I remember it being such a big deal. And this was in the blockbuster days. And I remember, I very vividly remember renting it on VHS and that aspect of it just being, you know, augmenting it. And this being a movie that I remember people tossing around a lot, that it was like the new scariest movie of all time. They're like, you know, step aside, Exorcist or whatever. But I just, I remember that being such a thing. And I, the, the one thing I, I still think about it as being very influential and interesting is that it used, I think it used the VHS medium in the same way that, you know, monster movies of the 50s and 60s uh, and on into even the 80s really used movie theaters as like attacks happen in the movie theaters as an attempt to kind of, you know, bring the the horror to the viewers who are physically in the movie theater. But this did that with home video in a way that was really interesting. Yeah, this movie has a lot going for it. And I actually just so happened to rewatch it Friday night a couple days ago. So the timing is kind of perfect for this to show up. I was afraid that it wouldn't really hold up, but it actually it really, really holds up. It doesn't use, it doesn't show a lot. There's not a lot of gimmicky graphics or anything bad. And one of the things I'd forgotten about this movie that I think really increased my enjoyment of it is it's it's really beautifully shot. It's a beautiful film. And it's almost like, it almost looks kind of like Instagram filter style where there's this blue sheen over everything. It's just a really pretty movie above all else. But it it was definitely around at that time when, you know, I was kind of ripe for that kind of a film. You know, I think it was early high school or late middle school, probably early high school. And I just remember being terrified and then going home. And of course, you know, like I'd fall asleep to the TV and like the snow would appear on the screen. And I would think about that movie every time it happened. I think I may have come to this one too late in life. I, I, I just don't like it, really, on any level. I, well, that's not true, actually. Sorry. I, I think the stuff with Samara, or whatever Samara's name is in The Ring, I think that stuff is good. Like, there's a lot of really gorgeous shots, as you call out, Hannah. But I, just, I don't find it scary. I don't find it interesting. Like, I don't like the director who 
his the entire rest of his filmography, he has one good movie and then it's just a shit show. I don't like the writer. Uh, I actively strongly dislike the writer, Aaron Kruger, who you can thank for uh, he worked with Orky and Kurtzman on all the Transformers movies. That's his big claim to fame. The Ring is just a movie that I, I think I just came to too late in life to really appreciate. It has some really great imagery. It has some really cool stuff. It just doesn't hang together in a scary or interesting or thematically rich way for me. So, Cal, are you a big fan of the original? Is it Ringu? I don't love it. If I'm going to pick a J-horror, I'm probably going to go uh, the, the original Pulse. Hell Yeah. That would probably be my pick, and uh, that came very, very close to making it on my list, actually. But the J-horror boom just didn't do much for me. Like, Pulse is kind of the exception for me. The Grudge, uh, Juwan, which is the original Grudge, uh, stuff like that just didn't, it just didn't hit me very hard. And I, yeah, it just never stuck with me. Yeah, so I mean, this is one that I think is ripe for a revisit. I know I, I definitely plan on checking it out sometime soon again. It's been a very long time since I've seen it, so I was I was actually curious about whether it held up. So it's interesting to hear you guys uh, have totally opposite takes on it. I'll I have to check it out and judge for myself again. I think if you liked it the first time, you'll probably be okay. It, it sounds like Cal didn't like it at any point it's not so much a lack of holding up it's more just if it's your thing i think yeah yeah i mean keep in mind the first time i saw the ring i was in grad school watching it on a uh, on a computer like within a room with like four friends so it's not a movie that i have that that visceral reaction to like hannah did where or like you did when you were younger and you get it on vhs and you have like the the fuzzy screen still in your memory. Like by the time I was watching this, I had cut all my cables. <laughs> I just it just didn't. Nothing about it had any any connection to my life really. I, I think part of it too for me, one of the reasons I was surprised that it showed up on the list is just that I remember really enjoying it back then. But I think the onslaught of really shitty J horror remakes that were the only horror movies that seemed like coming out for a long time, the only popular horror movies coming out, really just soured me on the whole kind of subgenre in a lot of ways. So, and that probably tainted that memory a lot. But all right, so I guess uh, let's move on to our number seven pick. We're going to go totally different here and go with uh, Shaun of the Dead, directed by Edgar Wright from 2004. So this is a one that showed up on a whole bunch of lists. This is... The, eh, it's not the only horror comedy on our list, but it's it's definitely one of of just a couple. So, what what are you guys' thoughts on this, especially given all the stuff he's done since then? I, I was a big fan of this one, uh, although I did uh, put it a little lower in my list uh, just because I was so confident that this was going to get a bunch of votes that I figured I, it didn't even need me to vote for it. I love Edgar Wright; he is one of my three or four favorite filmmakers working today. He is far and away the best comedy director working today, uh, I would argue. And Edgar Wright, for, for, for anyone who didn't catch Spaced, which back in 2004, there really wasn't a way for Americans to catch Spaced. For, so for anyone who didn't catch Spaced, this was their introduction to an entire style and sense of humor that's come to be not influential because I don't think anyone else can keep up with him right now, but certainly fascinating. And this was just a fun, funny, 
delightful movie. Came out in kind of a dead age of horror, and I loved it. I loved every second of it, and I, I still do. Yeah, I'm not sure if I even put this one on my list, but that would only be for the same reason others have cited with other films, just like it not occurring to me, to be honest. Mostly, I think, because this movie was just so funny that I just think comedy and I completely forget that it also qualifies as horror. But yeah, I mean, I think this certainly is a solid choice and belongs on any list, even though it wasn't on mine. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I put it on mine either, just because I also didn't really think of it. I was trying to think of more just like, except for for one that ended up on our number four and it was my number one. I I just kind of tend to forget about comedies and I was more thinking for this list straight horror. But yeah, Shaun of the Dead's good. It's just, I don't, it's not my favorite of the Cornetto trilogy. I, I prefer the other two, particularly Hot Fuzz and then probably World's End is a very close second because it's so Douglas Adamsy and that's more kind of my style. But I, I definitely wouldn't argue Shaun of the Dead being on people's list like this because it's it's definitely worth your time if you've never seen it. It's it's funny. I, I, I talked to a number of people who contributed to the list and I'm sure Harper saw way more of this than I did. I noticed a lot of there almost being factions of people who were horror purists versus people who had a very broad definition of horror. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I might have put Paranorman on my list, so I might have actually had two comedies on mine. I can't remember. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it, it is interesting to see. I mean, um, there are some things on our list that when I was talking to some of my some of the, my friends who contributed. They didn't consider Pan's Labyrinth a horror movie, or they didn't consider American Psycho to be a horror movie. And so even though they liked the movies a lot, they never would have voted for them. And so it, it's it's interesting just to see kind of the philosophical difference between what you consider horror, Shane, versus mm-hmm. what I consider horror. Um, I think Shaun of the Dead is definitely horror. It's just one that I, I just – it wasn't in my mindset when I was creating my list is more what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I know what you mean. I mean, I, I've I missed some that I love, but I mean, I've definitely talked to people who were just like, yeah. I mean, it's really good, but it's not horror. <laughs> yeah. No, could, no, it is. It, it is. Yeah, you could definitely tell that looking at the list. That was interesting. But yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things with Shaun of the Dead. It is absolutely a horror film. I mean, I, to, that's it's hard to hard to argue against that. To me, I think um, that was one of the things I remember being struck by the first time I saw it. I was like, oh, this is just going to be this kind of goofy you know, British humor thing that they're just making fun of zombie movies. But like, there's some like serious zombie gore stuff going on here. Not to mention, obviously, the bazillions of, you know, incredibly clever plays on on the zombie genre. I think it's borderline impossible to be a a horror movie fan and not be somewhat obsessed with this movie. I mean, I think that goes for all of Edgar Wright's movies and this team, the Cornetto trilogy uh, in particular. If, if that's a genre that you enjoy, it's, it's almost impossible to look away because it's just every moment, every moment of the movie is saturated with, you know, humor and parody of, of the stuff that we all know and love from these movies. And I think just to kind of, Piggyback on, on what some of you guys have been saying. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I think Edgar Wright is one of the finest directors that we have right now. The way he uses cinematic language is incredibly brilliant. I think Shaun of the Dead in particular, but I would say Hot Fuzz is a pretty close second for me in movies you can watch like over and over again and almost frame by frame and pick out visual gags and clever ways to, to use the medium that nobody else is like literally nobody else is doing. 
I remember reading a great article about how if, if there can be a purely visual gag in a movie and how, how that works. And the example they use is when the two groups run into each other against the fence and they all walk past each other and greet the other person who is their identical, you know, bizarro world opposite. And it's there's no language used there except for the language of cinema. And it's hysterically funny. But the whole movie just plays on everything in the horror genre that we love, and it works so, so well. Are, are you guys familiar with every frame of painting? Have any of you? Yep. If any of our listeners have not heard of every frame of painting, it is a YouTube series. It is absolutely essential viewing if you're a fan of film. And he has a very, very good video essay on Edgar Wright and how he uses editing and framing as devices of comedy in a way that no one else is doing right now, even in very simple ways. And Spaced was the start of that, but Shaun of the Dead was where I think he really broke through to another level. Yeah, I'd agree. And that that video, I was actually thinking about that, um, that every frame of painting video is was had played a big role in my kind of understanding of just how brilliant Edgar Wright is. So yeah, maybe we'll throw a, a link to that video up when we post the episode for anyone who uh, hasn't seen it. All right. So I guess moving on down our list, number six, we've got a movie from one of the godfathers of late American horror, I'd say uh, from Sam Raimi in one of his more recent films, which is uh, drag me to hell. Which is a I know a controversial one among uh, fans. So I was actually a little surprised to see it show up this high on the list, but it's definitely a movie I I really enjoy. I've have not seen it in quite a while, but it's an interesting one. So what what do you guys think? Uh, it's the first movie on the top ten that I actually voted for. <laughs> I I think I put it in my top five when I was voting. It might have been number five, but yeah, this movie came to me while I was working at the movie theater back home still and living in the town I grew up in and the town I was raised in church in for the first 18, 20 years of my life. So a movie like this really got me and was one of the few movies of the past 10 years to really scare me. And just seeing kind of Sam Raimi go back to that Evil Dead style with just enough comedy, but not so much that it's it's over the head with it. And like, as like, I'm kind of looking at the list here and as whoever typed the description said, it's, it's definitely a lot more gross than, than evil dead and a few of other of Sam Raimi's movies, but it's, it's just so much fun. It's such a, such a good movie. I need to, it, it really makes me want to go back and watch it every time I talk to people about it. I didn't realize this one was even controversial. It seems I, so I didn't either. Well, maybe I should just say that because me and my wife very strongly disagreed on it. <laughs> ah, we, we watched okay. it and she, she could not stand it, like hardly could get through it. But I, I really loved it watching it. So maybe, I, I'm, maybe I'm way too closed in on that opinion. <laughs> was that just because of the gross out factor, you think? No, I, I think she just thought it was it was too goofy, I guess. It didn't, didn't really click with her. But, you know, that's kind of the thing that I, I remember really taking away from it that I really, really loved is that. Dragman of Hell seems like one of the only movies I can think of that you can watch it and take it as 100% serious horror and get a lot out of it. You can also watch it as totally ridiculous and over the top and get equally as much out of it. Or, you know, you can watch it with any anywhere in between. But I think you could get totally different responses to the movie and both being equally valid and both coming out very positive about about the movie. I remember that being really, really stuck with me, just that whole idea that it works. It's much more subtle than, you know, the Evil Dead trilogy. Mm -hmm. It's much more subtle and it's really interesting that it kind of 
works in both ways like that. But I remember the other thing taking away from it too, I think of all the movies on our list, this might have the best ending or one of the best endings for sure, in my opinion. It just how completely <laughs> shocking and horrifying and sudden it is. is I, I wouldn't dare give it away here for people who haven't seen it, but it's incredible. The ending is so phenomenal and, and shocking. <laughs> It's funny. This is one I, I actually see where you're coming from on kind of it being a controversial pick, especially this high, Harper, because I saw it when it first came out. I saw it with a couple of people I know who, you know, I mean, profess to love horror movies. I mean, pretty much it's all they watch. And they just thought it was too silly to take seriously as a horror movie. They just could not get into it. And for me, I, I, I like it a lot. I mean, it's not my favorite Raimi movie, but I mean... It's up there on a list that includes a lot of really, really good movies. And uh, I think that there's just – there's a lot to dig into beneath the surface. There's a lot of good scares, beautiful scenes. It's – I understand finding some – Raimi's sense of humor a little silly sometimes, especially for modern audiences who aren't familiar with things like Evil Dead. But goddamn, it's, it's just good. Yeah, I mean, I think this movie, much like Shaun of the Dead, it's just really fucking fun. You know, like you enjoy yourself while you're watching it. And it's not about, you know, being a vehicle to deliver a couple of scary scenes that are spaced out evenly throughout the breadth of the film. It's just all really fun. And let's not let's I mean, let's not underrate fun in horror or in any storytelling. I mean, it's it's so easy for the genre to become dour, but I mean, I, I think that there's some really cool stuff that you can do when you open up the mood of a horror film to the kind of the full range of human experiences. You can just have a richer film. Yeah, I totally agree. And it still manages to be scary in the parts where it's going for that, but it can be fun and it can be funny at the same time. So I think to me, this is a a fairly, I mean, it is a little bit silly and a little bit grotesque, but mostly like I saw this in a probably full theater and I think everyone was like screaming and then laughing and then screaming and then laughing. Like people had a really strong reaction to this one. So I feel like it's mostly a crowd pleaser, although apparently a little bit less than I thought. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really interesting one, especially I kind of like that it worked out being back to back with Shaun of the Dead because they're both kind of horror comedies, but in completely different ways, I think. And they accomplish things completely differently. So it was interesting to see this show up. And I'm glad glad we're able to get Sam Raimi in here in in one way or another. (laughs) So that worked out pretty well. So moving on to our number five, we're going back to 2003 with this one. This is one of the early films shot completely digitally, I believe, which is kind of interesting. That is 28 Days Later, directed by Danny Boyle. This is one of the real, very early Danny Boyle movies where uh, I believe before this he had only, the only kind of movie that had really hit a vein was Train Spotting, I believe. And and The Beach, I guess, was before this, but obviously we're talking about controversial. <laughs> So, 28 Days Later, what, what are y'all's experiences with this movie? What do you think? It's been a long time since I've seen this movie. I, I don't really remember that much about it except the song. Yes, I had to say something about the song when I wrote it up. Actually, I, was, I hadn't thought of that when I first wrote it up, and then I re- remembered. I was like, oh, my God. That song is in. It was in every trailer for the next, like, five years. It was the go-to, like, epic song. Yeah, that, that 28 Days Later and Saw gave us two songs that got used in trailers a lot. Yeah, totally. This one was one that I really did not like when it came out. I remember a scene where I think like 
they're walking and like someone looks up and like a drop of infected blood falls in their eye. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, nope, this is fucking stupid. I'm done. This is just hack work. <laughs> and I mean, I revisited it a few years ago and it's fine. Like this is probably my single least favorite thing on the entire list. Uh, if I'm being honest, wow. like I don't, I don't care for, I, I don't love the ring, but I, I find that it's scary and well put together and all that. But uh, this, I, I just didn't like, and that's fair. I, aside from uh, Train Spotting and Shallow Grave, and uh, I like both of those movies quite a bit. I have not liked Danny Boyle's career, really, anything about it. I haven't seen Steve Jobs, but prior to Steve Jobs, between Steve Jobs and uh, Train Spotting, I am, I am not a Danny Boyle guy. Yeah, I mean, I think I enjoy this one. I don't think I put it on my list, but to me it suffers a little bit in my mind or my memory from just total zombie fatigue, which like is unfortunate because it was a little bit ahead of the curve in that regard and definitely features scarier zombies. They're fast and they're a little more frightening, but I think I'm just so over that trope right now that it's it's affecting my enjoyment of that a little bit. So, uh, horror purists, you heard it here. Send your angry hate mail to Hannah, who is the first one of us to call these zombies in 28 Days Later. <laughs> so I, I've gotten into many a stupid, pointless argument with people about whether they're classified as zombies. That like, Yeah, a lot of, a lot of horror purists, uh, yeah, a lot of them are very, like, quick to make the distinction that they're infected because none of the people in 20 Days Later or 28 Weeks Later are actually dead. Wait, so they're not zombies? They're just really scary zombie-like things? They're really scary sick people. Yeah. Sick people. Okay. I think what you mean, Harper, is not you've gotten into a lot of really stupid arguments, but you've gotten into a lot of arguments with really stupid people. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm on the right side of that argument, obviously. <laughs> I'm, I'm Wait, glad so you that... argue that they are zombies, Harper? Of course or they're, they're zombies. They're, okay. they're, they're creatures that infect other people by biting them. I mean, give me a break. That, to me, that's a zombie. As, but can't they, like, spit on them, too, and that infects them? So yeah, like, they, I mean, they break a few rules, so. You know, it just depends on the, your zombie of choice. Zombies, in a lot of cases, they can scratch or whatever, you know. But to me, the pure, the essence of a zombie is is the idea of a human being as a disease, and that and that is completely. Twenty days later is completely within those bounds, just because they're you know zombies are not slow by definition. I I don't think uh, I don't think that has anything to do with what makes zombies scary and what has made them so prolific as horror creatures. But you know, I was. I almost didn't put this on my list. It was pretty low on mine, but I I felt like I almost had to because I feel like it's kind of an iconic horror movie, particularly for the stuff in the beginning with the empty London. I think that's something that was really kind of shocking at the time to see a movie get pulled off in that way. And it felt if I remember it just feeling humongous and, and like, how did they pull this off? And like, this feels so real couple coupled with the fact that it was shot on digital. And by the way, if you go back and watch it now, it looks like garbage. <laughs> like it was maybe not a great idea to shoot it on digital when it wasn't really all that great yet. I don't know, but it does lend it a little bit of a sense of more of reality. I think even though it feels very dated now. I think the movie falls apart a lot when it gets into kind of the military aspect later on. But the first two thirds of it, I think are really interesting in that it gives you this sort of like, you know, kind of an attempt to do like a realistic look at a a contamination or a zombie apocalypse in this way. It gives you that a, a look at what 
how civilization would look. And this was maybe the first one to be able to accomplish that on a large scale, whereas, you know, things like Romero's dead movies were far more focused on like a single small space or a single societal issue or whatever. This was much more grand, even though it maybe didn't hit any particularly interesting themes because it tried to be so big in scope. I think the scope alone is worth mentioning. So I guess that will take us to our next film on the list, our number four, which is going to be The Cabin in the Woods, which I totally forgot there was a V at the beginning of that movie title. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is directed by Drew Goddard from 2012. This is a a very recent one, uh, maybe the most recent one that we've hit so far. Our top part of our list is very recent, which tells me that there's a, uh, a lot of really good horror being made right now, which is exciting. But yeah, this was this is the first one I think we've talked about that's, you know, within the last couple of years. Uh, this was one that my brother had been hyping up for a long time because this one was filmed years before it finally came out and it sat on the shelf for a long time and then it finally came out. And so my brother had been hyping it to me for so long and we went and saw it the weekend it came out and this almost never happens. So to show you how much we love this movie, we saw it twice in the same weekend and I don't think I've ever done that for a movie again since then. It, it was my number one because, I, I, in my opinion, it's it's probably the most brilliant horror movie of the past 10, 15 years. To me, this is kind of the, the spiritual successor to Scream in that it is very clearly a love letter to the genre that also wants to criticize all the stupid shit the genre has fallen prey to. And Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard were just a fantastic pairing to put this together. You know, this is one that, uh, like you, Shane, or like your brother, I guess, I had heard about being shelved and was just like, oh, my God, like, you guys have it. Like, let me let me give you money to put this in front of me. <laughs> and by the time it came out, I was just like, this can't possibly be. I'm sure it'll be kind of shitty, but whatever. I'll watch it. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. I think like you, Shane, I think I saw it twice in twice in about four days for me. Uh, I dragged friends to see it. I've forced a lot of people to watch it since I got it on Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, I, I, as have I. And it's 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 one that has been almost universally well-liked. Like, I, I I haven't shown it to anyone and had them come back and be like, no, nah, that, was, that was shitty. Like, even my, picky, <laughs> my nitpickiest friends in the world have enjoyed Cabin in the Woods. Uh, as, as I said in my description I wrote for, for the list uh, – and I know some of y'all may disagree with me, but I think out of our entire list, uh, Cabin in the Woods has the best third act out of any of them. It's certainly out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of go both ways on that because it's definitely a movie that I intellectually appreciate a lot. And the more that I've thought about it, the more that I've liked it and kind of wanted to watch it again. But I did come out of that just a little bit like, uh, after... Not not the ending. I like the premise of the ending, but just the incredible overload of cheesy CGI stuff at the end. I was a little bit like not into that when I first saw it. But I think the premise overrides it enough for me to really enjoy it. But yeah, I mean, I was, was a little bit not impressed with that final, final scene being the minority there. It's it's definitely different than the rest of the movie. Um, and But the overload is fun in a... You know, I just feel like I remember myself in the theater just laughing out loud and being, you know, just I cannot believe they took it this far. <laughs> like, you know, obviously the the premise in general is pretty incredibly brilliant and, and it's so simple that it's it's hard to believe it wasn't done before. 
the ending is a little different because it goes in such a different direction than you expect. But that's one thing I actually really like about it. As as much as I feel like this is a movie that I can watch over and over again, and I have many, many times, I really wish I could go back and watch it for the first time again because that last act is just so outrageous and so unexpected. I kind of love it for that alone. I think that's why I show it to so many people is because seeing their reactions when they realize what's about to happen is what makes it fun to watch. Yeah, this is one that I I love showing to people for the same reason. Just I I often like in my head, I I like to play a game where I take the premise of a film to kind of its logical conclusion with a lot of genre stuff. And they almost always pull back in most movies because they, they want it to stay relatable and on a certain scale. And this movie like outdid me. I, I was I was sitting there and I was just going like, oh, okay, so like, you know, like what's gonna like what's coming? What can all this mean? Like, how is this going to build? And it just took it so much fucking further than I thought it would that I was I was just giddy. It was just childlike surprise. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I I'm very rarely surprised by movies in a way that I was by this one. Yeah, and I think in kind of the same way as Shaun of the Dead, this is a movie where horror fans can pick apart every little thing and find, I mean, even now, I mean, literally while we're podcasting, I'm looking at our, our list and the picture we have is uh, Richard Jenkins' character standing in front of the, the betting board with all the different monsters. And even now, just looking at it, I'm like, oh my God, they've got the Deadites on the list. And like, you know, there's so much love for the genre just crammed into every pore of this movie. It's just too fun not to not to love as a horror fan. Yeah, I think even before the ending, the, the movie throughout does a really good job of keeping you on your toes and being really mm-hmm. inventive. Like when they go into the cellar or basement or whatever and they're looking at all the different objects and stuff i just i loved that part that was probably my favorite part of the movie this is one of those movies that like this is the only time in my life really that i'm actively like upset like i'm like oh my god like i would love to see more stuff in this world yeah like my my argument has always been i would love to see other culture you know like we remake japanese horror movies and spanish horror movies I'd love to see other cultures remake this with their own culture's tropes. Yeah. And I love that they kind of tie that in within the movie, too, as having, you know, the other countries have their own facilities that do the same thing. And, you know, but America and Japan have the have the highest track record, which is, you know, just great. And the, But the Japanese, their version in the movie is hysterically funny with the little schoolgirls who turn the creature into a frog. Yeah, the, the girls like holding hands and stuff. I was, I was thinking I wish we could get that version of like a spinoff too and see how, how they got to that result. How brilliant was it the way that they, I don't know if you guys had this, maybe uh, maybe not, but for me and a lot of people I worked with or I, I watched it with, they did such a brilliant job at making no one the bad guy really. I mean like, Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford's characters are clearly working for bad people, but there are numerous sequences in the film, like when they're trying to collapse the tunnel, say, that only work as beats in the film if you want Richard Jenkins to succeed. You know, like you have to want him to trap these kids. And I think the movie plays off of those shifting loyalties, you know, where you do you think that these these kids should die for the reasons laid out here? Or do you think that they should live regardless of the cost? And it's it's a really tough balancing act that the movie just did fantastic stuff with, I thought. 
Yeah, it's surprisingly complex on that front. I mean, I think it was really smart to start the movie off with the controllers rather than the the teenagers. And and to make them the central comedic part of the movie too. I think those guys are hilarious in this movie. So to that excellent casting by the way on that as well with Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford. Uh those I mean those two are just fantastic together. You know, coming from, you know, those guys are fairly brothers and Adam Sandler regulars, you know, and to to put them into something like this, just it's brilliant. But yeah, no, it's Cabin in the Woods is is a is an extremely smart and and funny and rewatchable movie endlessly. I will say, like, if you're like Harper was talking about, like the little details and stuff about the world, if you're interested in stuff like that, I would highly, highly recommend picking up the behind the scenes book they did for the movie because it tells you like everything and it shows you designs for all the creatures, even ones that didn't make it to the movie. And you'll realize why uh, one of the names on the board is Kevin and why Kevin is like clearly the best of all the monsters. <laughs> I have to check that out. Yeah, this is one, like, like Cal said, where, where you know, unusually people like us want to actually see more of this world, which is usually you think in a movie that has this many creatures, we would have seen more than enough. We'd be sick of it, (laughs) but yeah. So moving up now into our top three, these three movies were on a lot of lists. And now we're moving into the the range where these movies got over a hundred points in, in votes. So these three were fairly unanimous uh, among, among our voters. So to start with our number three is a uh, very, very recent movie from last year. And that is The Babadook, directed by Jennifer Kent. And this is a movie that we've talked about a a fair amount on our podcast. I believe it won one or two of our movie Rexies for last year. And it ended up on just about all of our best movies of the year list. So what makes you guys love The Babadook? I think for me, a big part of it is Essie Davis, the star of the movie, who I think gives one of the best performances of the of the decade so far. Like, not horror performances, not genre performances, not best actress performances, just flat-out performances on a film. She has to sell simultaneously the horror side, but also the, the part that makes that horror work, which is the stress and isolation and just emotional collapse at the hands of her son, her husband's death, uh, just her life events. And if if Essie Davis had given this exact performance as Abraham Lincoln's wife, she would have won every award on earth. Literally, don't even change anything. The Babadook can still be there. <laughs> if she was called Mary Todd Lincoln, then fuck it, she gets every award. But also Jennifer Kent can just build a scare. You know, I, I, I wrote the entry for this and... I rewatched the movie and the first 15 minutes are not scary at all. And then it just takes this, you don't even realize when it's happened, but you are already scared once it starts to ramp up. Like she is just very good at controlling the tone and the pace and the mood of this film. I just, yeah, I was even more impressed the second time I watched the Babadook than I was the first. Yeah, I'm with Cal. I really like this one. I thought it was kind of great how in addition to being just genuinely pretty scary and well-made, it also had a really unique take and interesting depth and meaning that you don't really expect to find in a film like that. I do think it probably, like some of the ones at the top of our list, ended up towards the top because it was so recent but, you know, it'll be interesting to see, like, in 10, 15 years, will this still be a number three slot for people? 
but uh, it, it really holds up. I'd have, you know, no qualms recommending it to anybody. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty damn brilliant. And it's funny, I, I really regret I, I didn't see this in theaters because just looking at, you know, the trailer or just reading about what the movie's about, it could it looks like it could be something very similar to kind of the, you know, generic horror movies I feel like we've gotten in the last four or five years. You know, stuff like Insidious and Sinister and those kind of things where there's just this kind of, like literally in the case of Sinister, just a, a generic boogeyman that's, uh, you know, just some monster in the shadows that's constantly threatening you. And this could have been so easily that, but instead... I mean, I, I think like you said, Cal, with the, the way it builds to becoming kind of a horror movie, it builds on this just like incredible sense of anxiety where, you know, this kid is so crazy and you want to strangle him a little bit. And that like the fact that you feel that way, too, is is so like in, a, in addition to the character, you feel that same way adds so much to the movie and that you you totally sympathize and you can see where this is actually this is this horrible situation where it's, you know, I, th- I think it kind of lends itself to a few different interpretations. But I mean, one of the ways I looked at it is it's almost like the horror of the possibility that you might not love your child, that your child is a horrible person. Um, And that's kind of the way it starts out, I think. And it it changes a little bit from there. But I mean, that's something that's really scary. That's an anxiety that is, is genuinely scary. And that blends really well into this more, you know, creature and violent type of horror that goes where you wouldn't expect. Um, And I think it's just incredibly clever and it's very very scary yeah i mean it's also probably one of the better films i've seen about depression even though it's a horror film and on its surface that's not at all what it looks like i think it was just really made from a couple different angles yeah i mean you know i suffered depression and anxiety for a long time and this film and uh, melancholia are the only two that I've ever felt really captured what that feels like and just how all consuming it can be. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and I agree with you, Harper. I think that part of the brilliance of the movie is that it makes you empathize with a mother who wants to kill her child on some level, which is not something that I think I've ever seen before. It's certainly incredibly rare. And it does so in a movie that, I'll be honest, is the only movie on this list that I've watched recently that like genuinely still can unnerve me. Uh, you know, I'm a little jaded. Uh, I think a lot of horror fans become jaded. And this one can still, just hearing the Babadook's voice uh, the first time or like seeing the little top hat figure, it can still just make me shudder just a little bit. Yeah, and I think the movie owes a lot to its design as well. I mean, the, the whole look of the movie, it just works perfectly for that sort of tone. But just thinking about the design of the creature and the design of the pop-up book, too, that plays such a big role is just really unique and, and is, I think, is bound to become iconic in, uh, in modern horror, I think. So moving on down, we're going to go back almost 10 years from our number three pick. So this is one of the older ones at the very top of our list, and that is The Descent by Neil Marshall. This is a movie that I am absolutely in love with, Um, and this is our number two and our number one that we'll get to in a minute. These had drastically more votes than anything else on the list. Both of these movies showed up on 14 out of the 20 people uh, who voted. So almost nearly everyone picked these two movies in one way or another. The Descent's a movie that I was kind of just really starting to get into horror movies, and it made a really big impression on me as just being 
so different from what was coming out at the time, which I guess at the time was kind of this, the J horror stuff and the, and the torture porn saw movies, all that kind of stuff. So I was just really not into either of those at all. And this was so incredibly different. I really envy it for uh, much like the Babadook. I think it takes a really smart approach to, to women in horror films that are traditionally victims. I think this movie takes a whole different approach and makes the entire cast women and is a very female centric movie and, and mother centric movie in a lot of ways. It's shot incredibly well on location in, in these caves. It's incredibly scary and, and emotional. This is just a movie that works on every level for me. I guess yeah. I need to rewatch it because I haven't seen it in a while. And I remember just being okay on it. So I guess I need to rewatch it since everybody loves it so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those who'd kind of missed out on this when it came out. So I didn't see it until maybe last year. It's been like less than a year since I've seen it from, for the first time. And I was super impressed. I can definitely see why it's a classic of a genre. It's really well made. It's really creepy. It's it's just really atmospheric. You know, I, I hear there were some sequels that were pretty dumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the original one definitely stands up. Yeah, I, I didn't catch this until f- about four years after it came out. I caught it, uh, actually, sorry, about five years after it came out. Because I remember in 2008... I was hanging out with a friend and we were flipping through on demand to see like what was free. And we passed by this movie, The Descent. Neither of us had ever heard of it. And I was like, well, I'm in the mood for horror. And we read the description. We're like, oh, a group of all female spelunkers. Yeah, now skip. <laughs> uh, just because it, it, it feels like it should be so exploitative. Yeah. But the movie is really a hundred percent about these about these women and there's no sense that it they're they're not full interesting characters there's no sense that they are just eye candy or something uh they're hyper competent they have really well-defined relationships and honestly just it is a gorgeously shot movie in the underground segments which is most of the movie to the point where i remember you know, I guess spoiler alert for those who haven't seen The Descent, there are monsters in The Descent. <laughs> but they don't show up for like halfway through the movie. And I remember watching the first half and just being like, Jesus Christ, it's how's it going to get scarier than this? Like, what what are they building to? Because like that sequence where Juno is hanging off the ceiling trying to pull the pythons out of the rock so that they can conserve their supplies. As someone who is scared of heights... That was fucking terrifying, and it was beautiful. Yeah, I think it's uniquely scary in that sense, too. It's got this kind of extreme sports angle to it that is pretty rarely exploited in horror movies, I think, that actually works really well for this this uh, this story. But, you know, it's funny. I almost feel, most of the time when I think about The Descent, I, I almost forget that the, there are even monsters in it because they're so almost irrelevant to the plot. They, they're really just kind of a generic threat, which I, I think that might be something that turns people off initially, is that just looking at it, the monsters are not particularly well-designed. They're not really all that scary necessarily to, to me. But the underlying tragedy that kind of starts the movie off and the emotional, you know, you know, this is a movie that's more about these relationships and and the the horror of when when you're betrayed or or when you know when something horrible happens in your life, a real life kind of tragedy. That's what it's really about, except that it's stuck in this boiling pot in this cave where everything's closed up and they can't get away from each other. 
it's just incredibly brilliant for that, I think. And I think that's what makes it so scary is that it's this whole self-contained thing. And that it's just, if it feels the friendships in the movie feel super genuine to the point where it's really awful to watch what happens to them happen. You know, I, th- I think that emotional resonance in the movie is what really sets it apart. It really is. And I mean, I think the reason the monsters exist for me and the reason that like I, I came to terms with them, because when I first saw it, I was like, this is going to be dumb. Like there's no way they're going to pull this off, but it plays so well into uh, just like the Babadook plays into the idea of this mother hating her child and postpartum depression. The descent plays in the same way with kind of this loss of self and loss of just civilization. You know, like when this woman's husband and child dies, she is completely lost. And it was fascinating watching Sarah played by uh, Shauna McDonald the rest of the group stays together pretty well. Like they make mistakes, they they figure things out. They, they're they're conventional horror heroines. Shauna McDonald, uh, Sarah, she just goes feral almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Like she she at uh, you know at some point she just realizes like oh the nightmare that is my life is continuing. I'm just going to give up and just I'm just going to turn into whatever I need to to survive. And that's just a great look at dealing with grief and whether you get over it or not, kind of what you have to become and how you have to toughen up in order to survive it. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I, I think it's in- incredibly smart in that way and very scary. And the, the last last thing I'll, I'll say about The Descent is it's a shame, I think, for one, that Neil Marshall never, I don't think he really went on to do anything this good again. At least he hasn't yet. I've uh, been fairly disappointed with the stuff he's done since then. But the other thing, for those who have not seen this movie, I cannot stress highly enough how important it is that you watch the the uncut original ending. It is so much better and so it fits the story so much better than the than the TV ending that they tacked on that uh, that ties into the incredibly awful sequel <laughs> that is totally not worth watching. So if at all possible, definitely watch that uh, that uncut ending. So moving on to our last. Last pick of the list. Uh, this is our number one. So again, just like The Descent, this was picked by almost everybody that contributed. It was very high up on a lot of lists. This was number one on my list as well as a few others, I think. That is a movie that came out this year, which is kind of incredible. Although, you know, as, as you said, maybe it, it could be just that we don't have as much hindsight and, you know, this is so fresh on our, our minds. But I also think it is an incredible movie, and that is It Follows, directed by David Robert Mitchell from this year. From uh, when This came out in January or February this year, very early in the year. Yeah, this one is one that I do think is going to tumble down a little bit on the list in the coming years. But I totally see why it's on here. I mean, it's beautifully shot, really great soundtrack. The creature itself, the the it, is great. And I thought that it was a really, really potent, interesting way to look at sexual awakening. Like, I, I, I don't like the sexually transmitted disease reading that a lot of people have. That doesn't really click with me. I see it as something broader and more universal, personally. But uh, yeah, I, I liked it quite a bit, even though I don't know if it was on my list. It definitely made my list. But as I said before, I feel like it being number one may be more a symptom of it having come out this year than it actually being the best movie since the year 2000. I'm not completely convinced that it it should hold the number one spot. But that said, it's 
it's so nice to actually have a good horror film come out. And we've been fortunate enough to have one this year with It Follows, one last year with The Babadook. Like, I feel like we're on this track now where we're actually getting one decent horror film out of each year, which is fantastic. And this definitely took that spot for 2015. I mean, it, it came out in kind of a dead time for movies when I wasn't really expecting to see something so good. And it was well told, fairly scary. I think it's, you know, the scariest on this list by, by any means, but um, just a really well-made movie. One reason I know I put it in my top five and it's to kind of talk about something, not that people don't talk about it but with this movie, but like maybe just to go on a different path and something we haven't really brought up that much with any of these films When my brother and I were at Halloween Horror Nights at Universal a few weeks ago, we were in line for the Insidious Haunted House, and we were talking about whether or not – because, like, Insidious is really popular right now. Obviously, they wouldn't pay the money to license that movie and make a haunted house out of it if they didn't think it would attract crowds. And, like, we were talking about if 10 years from now people would even be talking about Insidious. And I told my brother, I said, well, you know, I think one thing that keeps it from being a movie people talk about 10, 15 years from now is that it doesn't really have an iconic score. Like when you think of a classic horror movie, there's a lot of things to think of that like all almost all classic horror movies that anybody comes up with, like The Exorcist, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, any of these, they all have iconic scores and that is something that I think It Follows has going for it big time that will possibly help it have a lot of staying powers it probably has the best score of any horror movie on on our list yeah i mean that the the music by disaster piece is extremely unique but also gives it this sort of 80s feel that is so appropriate for the movie it's it, it's it's a weird connection that I, when i'm the first big music cue happened in the movie i remember being a little taken aback at first but then it just it works so well for this this movie it's that's definitely one of the big parts that drew me to it as well i think the the biggest thing that I, that draws me to this movie is just i really like when horror and sci-fi i guess just genre movies in general when they have the ability to do a lot with very, very little. Uh, We've talked about this with Doctor Who. I think a lot of the best episodes are the ones that do not rely on giant special effects and huge invasions and that thing. I mean, you know, things that are very contained and very um, involve very little special effects. I think that could be much more effective. And It Follows is the perfect example of that. And we're talking about a movie where the creature is just people that just walk around that sometimes look a little creepy, but most of the time they're just kind of normal people. <laughs> and beyond that, there's there's nothing. It's not a particularly gory movie. There are not necessarily a lot of like kind of jump out at you scares. It relies purely on the story and these characters to scare you. And it's incredibly scary, I think. For the weeks after I saw this movie, every time I was by myself and somebody was walking towards me, I was like losing it. <laughs> There were a lot of scary parts in it that I think would have been a lot scarier for me watching it in theaters if they weren't in the trailer. Like that scene when the thing walks in and it becomes that super tall guy when it walks into the doorway. Yes. That would have been utterly terrifying if it wasn't in every damn trailer for the movie. I feel like they kind of lost the money shot with that one. Um, but one thing I do really like about it is how ambiguous the ending is. And I think to an extent it's it's – insane how the things people have tried to drive from that movie and pull from it but i I do like the amount of ambiguity that it has which is something a lot of horror movies really don't do these days because so many of them get sequels so you can't you lose a lot of the ambiguity 
And I think it's, it's not even just the ending. The whole movie is very ambiguous. Yeah. I, I think it's got this really unique, eerie tone. It exists in this world that's kind of outside of time. There's, you know, it's not really clear when this is taking place. I think they're very careful to not, besides the very odd that I still can't quite pick out why it's there, the, the weird shell uh, e-reader device that the one girl uses. Uh, <laughs> but th- like there's things that look sort of futuristic like that, but most of it is sort of dilapidated and, and yeah, it's, you know. it's, it's an oddly timeless movie. Yeah. yeah. And, and not even just the timelessness of it too, but the fact that there's like, there are almost no adults in this movie. It's all completely centered on, on the kids. Uh, there's maybe two or three adults that appear in, in the fringes of the movie. And the the choice to put it in Detroit is just it's a perfect choice for this movie. It just gives it this very ghostly kind of sense of, you know, things past or whatever. It's hard to describe. But I mean, th- those that all works together to give it this really weird and uneasy atmosphere that just, you know, electrifies the whole thing, I think. This is probably the whitest movie ever set in Detroit, though. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Like, I think if we were making a movie in the 1940s set in Detroit, you would still be a little iffy about making it this white. <laughs> but, yeah, and I, I think, Shane, going back to something that you said a little earlier, uh, in addition to a really iconic score, I think one of the things that a good – not a good, a great horror movie needs – doesn't need. I can think of one or two really lasting examples that don't have this. It needs to have meaning, Insidious is a really pleasant genre exercise. Like it's it's not saying anything. It doesn't it doesn't have anything interesting on its mind. All it wants to do is set up a sequence of scares that take you from scary point A to scary point B to scary point C. And that's fun, but literally anyone can do that. Like James Wan is really good at it, but he doesn't do anything with it. Looking at our top ones, like, I mean, whether it's this with Sexual Awakening, The Descent with Falling Apart After Grief, uh, The Babadook with Depression, even 28 Days Later with The Collapse of Society or Drag Me to Hell, which has a lot of uh, overtones with eating disorders. These movies have a lot to dig into beneath the surface. They have a lot that makes you want to revisit them and think about them and talk about them and write articles about them and read articles about them and listen to podcasts about them, (laughs) hopefully. Uh, And that's something that I think that like Insidious and Sinister and like all this just – they're really fun. They are scary. And then as soon as the franchise is over, you forget about them forever, which is unfortunate. But I mean like, you know – well, should have tried harder, buddy. I'm nodding silently. <laughs> Perfect summary. In some cases, you forget about them by the time the next sequel comes out. Because I watched all three Insidious movies by the week before I went to Horror Nights. And then I only recognized about half of that haunted house as being something from a movie. I can't even remember which one Insidious is. Is that the one with Ethan Hawke? No, that's that's uh, Sinister. Okay. They're the same movie in my head. And so. uh, this is the one, like, the first one has the red guy, and the second one has the guy in a dress, and the third one has the guy with the mask. Is it Patrick Wilson? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's in the first two. Okay. Yeah, so obviously uh, these movies on our list, and, uh, you know, it, it follows being a very good example of that art. 
I think have the ability to be much more lasting because there are so many interpretations and, and, and ideas being thrown there and, and just the way they accomplish those things. I think you summed it up absolutely perfectly, Cal. That's exactly the way I feel about these movies. And I think our list came together really well, kind of representing that. I think for the most part, everything that's on, on our list, as you'll see when you check it out, is... I think movies that hopefully will last, you know, the test of time a little bit and, and stand out. You know, if we did this list again in 10 years, I, I think a lot of these would probably still be there. I think we'll wrap this up by having everybody just kind of toss in one or two movies that they voted for that they really wish had made the list, but uh, didn't didn't quite make the cut. So uh, who wants to go first? I actually, most of the ones I picked made it on here. And the the one I picked that didn't, it's not like it's a super memorable film, even. It just has a really memorable moment for me, which was The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but there is one scene in particular where one of the main characters, she she was on Dexter. I can't remember the actress's name. She was Deb on Dexter. Jennifer Carpenter, right? Yes, Jennifer Carpenter. She is like on the ground and she like contorts her body into this like creepy, menacing pretzel figure. And a dude wakes up and she's just there staring at him from the floor. And I swear to God, like I saw her on the ground of my bedroom floor for like four nights in a row when I woke up. Like it haunted me. It was so terrifying. So that's that that was my pick that didn't make it. There's a lot to be said for a a single scary moment that really sticks with you, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's such an I mean, that's such a big moment for the film. I I think they even put it on the cover, which unfortunately kind of ruins the moment. (laughs) So I'll I'll throw mine in um, next. I I initially wanted to say uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which I love that movie. And I was kind of shocked to see that. I don't know if anybody else picked it. I don't think it showed up on anybody else's list. But because our list is ripe with horror comedies already, I'm going to say Pulse, which uh, Cal mentioned earlier. That's one. Of, that's my the only J-horror movie that I'm way into. It's, it's a movie that takes place during the beginning of the Internet age. It actually has moments of a guy reading instructions on how to use the Internet, which is kind of wonderful now. It's like the earliest example of this like fear of where this super connectedness can take could take us um and it's really genuinely scary and very clever and has i I think the era that it takes place in at the beginning of of the internet and that sort of age is one that i have a lot of nostalgia for so it it hit me for that reason as well pulse is also i think the best movie i've ever seen at capturing the feeling of apocalypse Mm -hmm. like you mentioned 28 days later uh and empty london giving you that feel of grandeur and to me, that's what stuck out so much about Pulse is just the way it creates the feeling of an empty world yeah. as a means of inducing horror. For mine, uh, one I'll say that uh, <laughs> I fully expected it not to make the list, but I, I voted for it because, damn it, I liked it. Rob Zombie's Halloween too. I know uh, his remake of John Carpenter's Halloween was like a big – no, no, for a lot of people. And no, it's not as effective as the original, but uh, when he takes the sequel and does completely his own thing with it, it it becomes this really weird experimental slasher movie with probably my favorite slasher of all time with Michael Myers. And so that just made it even better for me. I, I, I adore his take on that because um, it, it actually felt like it was his act, his take on those characters instead of just him rehashing John Carpenter. 
In terms of ones just with, presented without comment that I'm surprised just didn't make the list that I expected that I voted for that I expected people to actually vote for, there were three big ones that I'm surprised didn't make it, and those are The Strangers, the original Saw, and uh, the remake of Evil Dead. Those are all ones that I fully expected to make the list, um, and I was I was surprised by that as well. Hall- Halloween Two is one I definitely need to. I don't think I ever saw it. I saw the original, well, the original remake. And I was a really big fan of Rob Zombie stuff at the time and, and really enjoyed that one. But I think now I kind of agree with the detractors and, and that I think it's, a, it's it explains too much. It takes some of the, you know, supernatural-esque-ness of, uh, of the original Michael Myers out of it. But I need to see the second one because I, I used to be very into Rob Zombie stuff. The Devil's Rejects was a longtime favorite of mine as well. Yeah, I- I, I never got into Rob Zombie that much, but uh, I recently watched and very much enjoyed The Lords of Salem. I need to see that. So yeah, I, I'll go back and give it a shot. I, this is literally the first even remotely positive thing I've heard about Halloween 2. Uh, yeah. I, I saw it on somebody else's list, so I felt like, okay, at least somebody out there agrees with me and doesn't <laughs> think I'm crazy. <laughs> As for the other ones, yeah, I mean, I was I was a little surprised, but I think that Saw, having just watched all of the Saw movies, (laughs) I'm not surprised that didn't make it that much. Like, I mean, nostalgia might play a big factor, but it's time has kind of passed. Like uh, uh, James Wan and Lee Wannell went on to do so much bigger stuff. It it is hard to watch the original Saw, especially once you know that every single bit of that movie, they just did the first take and that's what ended up in the movie. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I didn't know that, but that does explain a whole lot. Yeah, I was surprised not to see that too. If if not because it's a good horror movie, if for the fact that it's important in in what it spawned. In the same way, The Ring kind of was the onset of J horror remakes. I feel like right. Saw was the onset of you know Hostel and Human Centipede and, and those kind of movies that I cannot stand. But I used I loved Saw when it first came out, and remember thinking it was just so clever. It, it would have been nice to see the Evil Dead remake make it just because it it's probably the best remake of an American horror film that's would, been done. I would have liked to see it make the list just to piss Kyle off. <laughs> he would I mean, not be happy. He would be so mad. I mean, I, like Shane, I, I get what you're saying, but I mean, you're 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 putting that above the thing and the fly at that point. So let's not get ahead. Uh, Ah, uh, okay, let's let's reduce it to like the timeline we're working with him then. <laughs> yeah, so mine, I didn't expect either of these to make it. One, because it's barely a horror movie. It's more kind of a psychological thriller vein, like Black Swan and American Psycho. And that's uh, Lynn Ramsey's We Need to Talk About Kevin, which if you want to talk about a movie about uh, someone <laughs> who hates their kid... <laughs> Does that give you a kid to hate? Played by uh, Ezra Miller, the uh, upcoming Flash. <laughs> that one is great, but uh, I wasn't shocked to uh, to make it. My big one was Amer, a Belgian-French movie that was riffing off of Italian horror. It is a kind of modern update of the giallo genre, which Dario Argento made famous with films like Suspiria and at least with for Western audiences, he made them famous. It is almost a silent film. Like, I think there might be maybe 15 lines of dialogue in the whole thing. And it is basically just three short films, each of which is a different genre of horror, each of which takes place at a different 
point in this young girl's life. So the movie starts with her as a child, and she's being stalked by a nanny who may be practicing some dark magic. The second section is, I think, the weakest, but it is her kind of awkward adolescence and feeling threatened by kind of men in her life. And her third one is her as an adult returning home to an empty house haunted by memories. And it is a gorgeous film, but it is also a nearly silent art house Belgian French horror movie. So this was not one I was expecting to see on here. Yeah, that's I mean, that sounds way, way up my alley. But yeah, it does not sound like one that's probably going to hit mainstream horror fans uh, all that all that often, unfortunately, maybe. Yeah, but, sounds good, though. Yeah, it sounds very it cool. So I think that's going to wrap us up. Of course, if you're listening to this, I'm assuming you've probably already checked out the article. But if you haven't, definitely go to geekrex.com and check that out. It's a list I'm I'm pretty proud of. I think we're all pretty happy with the way it came out. We've got a lot of good stuff on there. So definitely check that out. And another thanks to everybody who contributed and, and helped make the list what it is. So uh, that's going to wrap us up. Everybody uh, have a great Halloween. Enjoy the end of your October. Hopefully everybody gets to watch some, some good horror movies before the month is up. And we'll be back next week with something new. Mm-hmm.